morning, everyone. Let's have a word of prayer together. Lord, we just want to ask you now to inhabit um, this message. Pray, Lord, that it would be a very sacred time. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray and thank you that your Holy Spirit blows where he wills. Uh, touching this part of us, that part of us. And so we just open ourselves, Lord, to your grace, your mercy. You tell us in your word to take heed how we hear. We pray that as we read scriptures that we would, uh, our spirits would resound with joy and with uh, gladness at how good you are. We praise you. I bless this congregation, Lord. Ask for your anointing. We know that without that, um, we're nothing. So we just bless you and praise you. Thank you for the joy that's here. And um, enliven our spirits, Lord, even more as we look into your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I'm sure you remember that King David had a habit of speaking to his own soul, didn't he? We've talked about that a lot. In Psalm 42, he says to his soul, Why so downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? And then it, he goes on to say, You shall again praise God. And then Psalm 146, verse 1, David says to his soul, Praise the Lord, O my soul. But his favorite refrain seemed to be, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This is how he starts Psalm 103. And um, he goes on to get very specific in talking to his soul. Listen to what he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities. I wonder if he's still talking to his soul here. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. How many of you can say, God has done those things for me? God has done those things for me. Though I face various challenges, he has filled my life, my years with good things. Hallelujah. Well, I want to point out at the top of the list, at the top of the list when David is talking to his soul and he says, forget not all his benefits, at the very top of his list 
is God's forgiveness of our iniquities. And so I want to speak to our souls today and, and remind our souls of the forgiveness of the Lord and how wonderful a gift that is. God is a forgiving God. He's a forgiving God, and aren't we glad that He is? Hallelujah. Um, it's the forgiveness of God that I want to speak of, and specifically I want to center on the idea that our God is a big-hearted God. Our God is a big-hearted God. Our big-hearted God is a forgiving God. We see this great forgiving heart of God in many verses of the Old and New Testament, but let's, let's start with the Old and work our way into the New. Isaiah 118, come now and let us, what? Reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as wool. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked man return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. How many of you in here would say, I have been abundantly pardoned? Thank you, Lord. Jeremiah 31, 34, for they shall all know me, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Psalm 86, 5, for thou, O Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, what? So far as has he removed our transgressions from us. Ephesians, as we move into the New Testament, 1.7, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And I would say he continues to lavish upon us. Acts 10.43, this was Peter preaching to Cornelius and the people he had gathered. He said, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And then the one we love so much, 1 John 1.9. Most of us can say this one by heart, but if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't it beautiful that at any time of the day or night, we can forsake our sin and run to our Father in heaven for refuge, for forgiveness, for cleansing, and so on. J. Vernon McGee uh, asks this question about the prodigal son in the prodigal son story. He says, do you know the difference between the son in that pig pen and the pig? The difference is that no pig ever said to himself, I will arise and go to my father. Isn't it beautiful that we can arise and go to our father when we are devastated with our shame when we're devastated that we have uh, 
dishonored the Lord and even violated our own sense of self, our own sense of who we are, at any time, day or night, we can go to the Lord and say, Father, just, just take me again. Forgive me. Cleanse me. So wonderful. In Jesus Christ on the cross, we see the pinnacle demonstration of God's great forgiving heart, don't we? Let's look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. You don't need to turn there. You've heard these words many times, but I would invite you just to hear them again in the deepest part of your soul. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. From the agony of the cross, our Savior's very first words were what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very first words of Psalm 103 that David is speaking to his soul is thanks to God that he pardons all our iniquities. And the very first words from the cross that Jesus spoke was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let us speak to our souls this morning and say with David, I will not forget that he pardons all my iniquities. All my iniquities. We sang this morning, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Thank you, Lord. Well, because God has a great heart of forgiveness, um, you can bet that he is training us to develop great hearts of forgiveness as well. We join a local church only to discover that we are suddenly in deep relationship with some wonderfully forgiven but deeply flawed people. And then the most frightening thing happens. These deeply flawed people have the audacity to come to you and start pointing out your flaws. Can you imagine such a thing? Over time, though, you come to realize that if you really want to be like God and be perfected in love, that this is all part of his plan. To put us in a community of forgiveness and love. To put us in a culture where we are reproved, 
and then loved. And so we realize we've got to open, if we want to go on with God, we've got to open ourselves to uh, showing people all our weaknesses, our sins, our flaws, our insecurities, our fears, and the list could go on and on. But a community of loving people, a culture of forgiveness. Here are some verses about forgiving each other in that community of forgiveness. This is Luke 17, starting in verse 1. And Jesus said to his disciples, It is inevitable that offenses should come. That's pretty stark. It's, it's inevitable that offenses and stumbling blocks should come. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Ever have a season where you feel like all you do is apologize for yourself? Anybody? Can anybody relate to that? And you really need to. I mean, it's not, it's not fake. You're just in a season of messing up. But I'm glad for a group of elders who love me and forgive me quite a bit. I'm glad for a wife who forgives me. I'm thankful for a congregation that forgives me and loves me. And friends and family that do the same. Here's Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's pretty, pretty powerful. This one I've always liked, Proverbs 19.11. It is a man's glory to overlook an offense. And how many of we, we try to do that, don't we? As much as we can, we try to let offenses go. But sometimes, as much as we try to let them go, they just stick. And we realize we've got to do something. And then this beautiful verse, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Isn't that a beautiful word? Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And then, one more. In the last couple years, this verse has brought me a lot of comfort. James 3, verse 2. Just the first half of that verse. It says, for we all stumble in many ways. Yeah. Isn't that great? For we all stumble in many ways. It brings me peace. Um, if I see Matthew stumble, and, uh, you know, I don't have to condemn him because we all stumble in many ways. Right? Uh, Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Marriage, uh, makes a joke about this verse. He says, what do you get if a man stumbler and a woman stumbler get married? You get lots of little stumblers. 
And uh, that's good for parents who need to extend a little grace to their kids, right? Everything they've done, you've probably done worse. Nathaniel lit our front yard on fire, and I just laughed because I'd, I'd lit a garage on fire when I was his age. Forgiveness, that is forgiving one another, is both simple and yet extremely complex. Young children are so quick to wholeheartedly forgive. Isn't that a beautiful trait of young children? I mean, you can have a father who literally abuses his little girl. But if he comes to his senses and he genuinely repents, what does she do? She doesn't start rehearsing the injustices before forgiving. She doesn't ask for reparations or trust-building exercises. She doesn't demand righteous consequences or parenting classes. No, she simply rushes to her daddy's neck with tears of joy and says, Daddy, I forgive you. I love you. The child's only thought is, you've come back to me. From whatever strange land you were in, you've come back to me. We will be happy now. Let's go play. In this way, children model the kingdom of God, don't they? And we would do well to learn from them. But for adults, forgiveness becomes incredibly complex. Uh, theologian and ethicist Lewis Smedes calls forgiveness love's toughest work. I think that's a good phrase. Forgiveness is love's toughest work. As we attempt to forgive, we, we run into so many questions in our minds and hearts. Here's an excerpt of some notes I made in the late 1990s or so after someone had hurt me and was asking for my forgiveness. I wrote, someone very close to me hurt me deeply. I gave this person the things most precious to me, my home, my family, my food, my protection, my money, and my faith. There's, and there is one thing that pushes my button more than anything. Something each year I tell the youth group kids is the very quickest way to get on my blacklist. And that is to deceive me or try to deceive me. I take it very personally. Malign me, use me, abandon me. I can take these, but don't try to deceive me. This person did deceive me, or tried to, big time. Lied to our faces, wasted our money, and put my family's finances and my legal status at risk. And this week, I received a letter from them saying this. I want to apologize for what I've done. I know you're not going to forgive me just like that. Don't worry, I'm not going to use you or something. I'm going to come to Tulsa, and then this line, I hope you'll find something in your heart to forgive me that I lied to you. 
And so now there is a log jam of feelings and questions in my heart as I try to do what they request, and that is find something in my heart to forgive them. So here are some of the questions I worked through as I uh, tried to do that. If I forgive this person, must I love them again? Must I accept them back into my home in order to demonstrate forgiveness? Must trust or a complete renewal of trust occur when I forgive someone? How do I forgive and yet protect myself and my family in the future from further hurt? How do I restore feelings of love when all respect is gone? That's, that's a hard one for me. If I've, if I've lost respect for the person, it, it's difficult for me to want to restore love or restore uh, forgiveness. Does God expect me to forget like he does? Will my kids see me as weak if I forgive and let go of my anger? How long do I want to carry this in my heart? Then, then my mind goes to, have I ever lied? Well, yes. Have I ever deceived? Well, yes. In fact, my name means the deceiver. <laughs> James, it means deceiver, taken from Jacob. So why is this so hard for me? And yet it is. I don't want to forgive this time. Maybe, maybe you can relate to that, that you've, you, you have exercised forgiveness time and again. You've, you've over, it's to your glory to overlook things, but then something comes along and you're just tired. You're tired of the work that's involved in forgiving. I don't want to forgive this time. Forgiveness is confusing. There's a log jam in my heart, and yet one thing I do know, and that is that God has forgiven me, and he's forgiven me of far worse things than what's been done to me. He commands me to forgive. How can I decide not to forgive? Who am I to not forgive? And then, just to be sure and pour a little lemon juice in the paper cut, we start to get angry. Lord, why do I have to work through all these confusing questions and feelings when I didn't do anything? They did it. Anybody relate to that? You're just agonizing in your morning quiet time and on your way to work, and, and, and you just get mad that you have to spend so much energy working through these deep questions. I think Smeeds is right. This is love's toughest work. And yet, this is what God has called us to, to become like him and to be a part of a community of forgiveness, a community of love. Dr. David Jeremiah, in his devotional this week, it was titled, What Does the World See? And he said this, if you see men in long black coats, white shirts, black hats, and beards, 
you're probably seeing Orthodox Jews. If you see someone bowing before a large statue of a man with his legs crossed and hands resting in his lap, this person is probably an adherent of Buddhism. How does the world identify a Christian? Dr. Jeremiah asks and goes on to say, there is one sign by which Jesus said the world should be able to know they are looking at a group of Christians. What is it? By their love for one another. In 1 John, the Apostle John said, how can we know that we have passed from death to life? In other words, how do we know we're the real thing? How do we know we're the real McCoy? How do we know that we are really uh, God's possession and the Holy Spirit is really within us? And his answer is, by our love for the brethren. First Peter says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart. And then Jesus said, of course, in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the new covenant is a covenant of love. The new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness. Our God has a huge heart of love and a huge heart of forgiveness. Now, rather than try to work through all the complexities of forgiveness, some of you are going, phew, I don't want to go there. I would like to wrap this up by highlighting some ways we can position ourselves spiritually to have great hearts of forgiveness, like God. So number one, I think, is to stay very aware and focused on our own sinfulness rather than other people's sinfulness. Would you agree? You know, the the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the sinner. The Pharisee was busy praying, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Fatal mistake. Fatal mistake. The sinner, he was focused on his, he wasn't even maybe aware of the Pharisee. He said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that he went to his home justified. John 17, verse 9, I hope you have this memorized. The heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? You know, when I think of that verse, I don't think of you. I think of me. As, as layers are peeled away and I see more and more what's inside me. I think this is a battle uh, that teenagers have. Is, is they're coming into young adulthood and they see the evil for the first time within inside themselves and they say no one can love me really if they knew what was inside me and so a huge existential question for teenagers is am I lovable and so if they are loved through those years despite their mistakes their rebellions their acting out 
they, they come to terms with, uh, yeah, I'm pretty bad, I'm pretty evil sometimes, but I am lovable. And uh, some of us parents might feel that, uh, or adults might feel that still within ourselves. Am I lovable? Under this same idea of being very focused on our own sinfulness, it's helpful to me to, 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 say, to say and really believe I am capable of anything. You know, if I think about desperation, a lot of things are committed because people are desperate. And uh, some are mentally ill and some, some are evil. But uh, it just helps me to truly believe that I am capable of, of, of any evil instead of, I would never do that. So that's number one. Stay very aware and focused on your own sinfulness before God rather than others. Number two is, I think it's helpful to see others as weak and needy and fearful and stubborn and selfish and sinful rather than evil. Now, I do agree with the great writer Louis L'Amour, who wrote hundred, I don't know, a hundred westerns or something, and he said, some men just need killing. <laughs> and uh, I agree with that. I think there are some men in this world who just need killing uh, and are, are truly evil. But most people, most people are not trying to be evil. I mean, in one sense, we're all evil, but, but I think in a for the purposes of this discussion, most people are needy and scared and uh, insecure and stubborn and s- sinful and selfish, just like me. Um, how many of you get tired of driving around town seeing people on their cell phones? I mean, th- the thoughts, honestly, that come out of my brain are, you narcissistic selfish, superficial, you know, I start judging these people. And, and, and yesterday, uh, I was in this, um, I was listening to Pandora on my phone, and I was turning into Southern Hills Mall, which is a real mess. And there was quite a line of people, you know, cars lined up to make that left turn into the mall area. So, uh, and just then my Pandora cut out. So I'm messing with my phone, trying to figure out what's going on, and all of a sudden, horns are going off everywhere. Not gentle taps on the horn, but I mean angry car horns. And uh, I, I, I look up, and there's nobody in front of me for at least a block. And uh, so... There it is, right? I mean, the very thing that I'm castigating people with the day before, or even the hour before, there, there I am doing it, you know, in that moment. So I think having this notion that people are weak and needy and stupid and selfish and stubborn and sinful, it injects compassion into us rather than evil. You know, it injects 
I'm just like them. Now, when it comes to personal sin in others or moral failures, it helps me to say to myself, I am in no position to judge anyone because of of my sin. Paul had that attitude in the sense that he said, I am the foremost of sinners. And I really, I really let that attitude go deep in me, that I am not in a position to judge anyone. I try to genuinely believe I am capable of anything, and there but by the grace of God go I. Number three, I would say, let us adopt a mindset that you need the Savior every moment of every day. I realize that I go through life thinking, well, Jesus saved me back here. And sort of now it's up to me. You know, he's working in me. And now uh, I'm on the straight and narrow. I should be doing good. And then when I fail uh, or sin, I think, what happened? Rather than having an attitude that I didn't just need a Savior when I got saved. I need a Savior every moment of every day. I shouldn't be surprised that I need a Savior every hour of every day. This was Brother Lawrence's attitude, wasn't it? We've talked about him in the past, this monk from the 13th century, I believe. He was not surprised by how bad he was and how many mistakes he made. He was surprised when he could be good. When he messed up, which was about every 15 minutes, He would say to the Lord and to himself, almost with a chuckle, uh, without you, Lord, I can't do any better. And he would quickly repent and move on and not condemn himself. How different that is from many of us who we see ourselves as doing good, and then we mess up and, oh, we, we beat ourselves up for, what, two, three days? Chris, how long does it take you to recover? Three. You're a three day man. All right. Well, about the same for me with a serious mistake. I'll just beat myself up for quite some time. We sing, I need thee every hour, but do we really live like it? May we have a constant awareness of our need for God. And then the last point is, I think we can develop a magnanimous spirit. Magnanimous is not a word that we find in most our English Bibles, but it is what we're talking about today. We're talking about a big-hearted God who wants us to be a big-hearted people. Magnanimous means greatness of heart or bigness of soul. And it talks about it, it, it typifies some, uh, someone or s- someone who is generous in giving out to others and also generous in forgiving insults and injuries, overlooking them. Aristotle called it the crowning virtue. And magnanimity refuses to be petty, resentful, or in- vindictive. In Exodus 34, God shows up in a cloud to Moses and describes to Moses who he is, what his nature is like. 
And I want to read that to you. This is starting in verse 5. And you will see God is describing himself as a magnanimous God, a big-hearted God. He says this, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. 